0: This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast. Next week, I plan on attending the Humans to Mars Summit at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. While I've always been fascinated by space travel and our universe, I'm equally fascinated by the evolving technologies that are benefiting us here on Earth while we pursue the stars. New ways of communication, remote healthcare, surgery, printing our own food, the list goes on and on. I've invited Chris Carberry, the CEO of Explore Mars, which is a not-for-profit organization committed to this effort and the sponsor of the summit to join me for a quick dialogue to help us understand what's going on at the summit, what can we expect to see, what can I expect to experience, and why you and I should care about why humans to Mars. So join us for the conversation on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on Earth today is data. How we make it, use it, move it, and protect it my name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Chris Carberry, welcome to the QTS Experience. Thanks for joining.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Chris, I'm really excited about the conversation. I, um, I have a connection to space travel, space interest, beyond just being a curious nerd. My uh, my family's worked in and around the space industry for a very long time. And in a happy accident a few weeks ago, I came across uh, an organization, I believe it's called Explore Mars, a not-for-profit organization that you're the CEO of. Is, am I getting that right?
1: Uh, yes, you are. That's correct.
0: Perfect. And, and I came across the organization because I came across... Um, Somebody talking about an upcoming summit and if, uh, you know, by the time this broadcasts, a week or so, 10 days from the time this is going to be announced um, in mid-May in D.C., uh, which is um, the Humans to Mars uh, Summit, I think is what it's called. Am I getting that right?
1: You are the Humans to Mars Summit on May 17th through May 19th at the George Washington University in D.C.,
0: well, hopefully I can make it up there. That's my goal. But the very first thing, and you're, we'll get to it toward the end of our conversation here, some of the speakers and some of the topics. But for me, one of the questions I wanted to ask you to start with is why Mars? Why Mars? Before we even get to the summit, why did Chris say, man, this, this is fascinating to me and I want to start a not-for-profit in this area?
1: It's funny you ask that question. We've asked that question a lot, (laughs) and sometimes I think the space community doesn't answer it too well, and we've even even done op-ed series, we've done publications on that very title, Why Mars, and one of the problems is within the space community that sometimes we don't seem very unified because there are so many reasons why Mars, when we went to the moon, well, there are a lot of reasons if the scientists and engineers wanted to go to the moon, but policy-wise, it was only one reason, to beat the Soviet Union. Right. And that was great. It worked, but once we beat the Soviet Union, there was no more reason to go to the moon, at least from policy perspective at the time. So we stopped. With Mars, though, there are so many reasons. There are dozens and dozens. You know, first off, Mars is the closest location that we can get to that has an atmosphere that we can really live off the land. There is water on Mars. There is abundant water on Mars. There's water ice. There's evidence of liquid water below the surface. And of course, that's important because if we want sustainability on Mars with humans, water is essential. We can use water obviously for water, but also for methane fuel, for oxygen. We can also use the CO2 atmosphere for oxygen but it also could be an indicator of potential life. So another reason is the search for life in the solar system or in the universe. Mm -hmm. If we, you know, we don't think there is intelligent life on Mars. Mm -hmm. We think if there's life, there would be microbial life. And, but even even finding microbial life could redefine our perception of life in the universe. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the great reasons why, just understanding the nature of life in the universe being able to go someplace where we can have sustainability for humans, but also going there to understand our own planet. Mm. Mars is also the most similar to Earth. Now it's dry and barren, but it looked like it used to be a warmer, wetter place. So we want to know what happened. Could that happen here? And so by looking at other planets, whether it be Mars, where we can actually go, or Venus, where we can't go because it's 900 degrees and crushing pressure and sulfuric acid rain, so Mm. not a very good place to send humans, you know, we can learn a lot about our own planet. But one of the things that really motivates me is just the power, the inspiration uh, and the national morale aspects, and the, the 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 likelihood of great innovation when we go to Mars, all the things we over have to overcome, the innovations we'll be doing for uh, making for food production, medical science, artificial intelligence are all going to be could have dramatic, dramatically beneficial impact here on Earth. So one of the reasons I've been pushing it is because of the benefits for Earth.
0: Mm. Did you, I mean, it, as you describe this, is it ultimately an endeavor that's, um, and I'm not trying to necessarily pin you into it either or, but the moon is very close. Is the primary reason for Mars, even though the obstacles are greater, the distance is much greater, um, but you have some base material that you can work from. I know that when we, for example, the International Space Station, um, not not at the moon, but low Earth orbit um, or, or Earth's orbit. Uh, we, you know, they're great at recycling water, water reclamation. We do still have to bring fresh water there on occasion to introduce it to the season. And there's a cost and complexity to that. And then electrolysis to separate it into oxygen. And the other things that they do um, is the reason why or one of the primary reasons why we, w- the, in your mind, we should focus on Mars as opposed to the moon Because there is, you know, one of the materials we desperately need water, the idea is we don't have to bring as much with us. We can hopefully farm some of it there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, we absolutely will bring all these resources on our initial missions. We can't rely on ISRU in situ resource utilization on the first missions. But, yeah, absolutely. For the moon, though. Um, there is also, there is evidence of water in some of the polar regions I have not been exposed to um, sunlight, so there are plans to try to also utilize the water on the moon, and we we, we assume that we're going to go back to the moon before we go to Mars. We, do we need to? Is it required? No, but that's the current policy, and we have been working with the lunar community and the Mars community to try to find uh overlap to find synergies to make sure if we go back to the moon we do it in a way that's going to advance the goal of getting humans to Mars and not be a hindrance right. because it could very well turn into a moon only program with all the hardware exclusively designed for the moon and so then we're on the moon for 10 years and we start thinking oh maybe we should start thinking about going to Mars now and then that would still make it two decades off so right. we are very my organization has been committed for the last several years in making sure that you know, mission designers and policy um, professionals are thinking in these terms that you think about the end goal or the next goal, at least I don't think Mar- hopefully Mars won't be the end goal right. uh, of getting to Mars and how you can integrate that within the moon architecture. Not everything is perfect analog. Not everything will overlap, you know, the moon does not have an atmosphere, Mars does. So. When you're doing entry descent and landing on Mars, it will be quite a bit different than landing on the moon because you're not going through an atmosphere. But there are a lot of other things that can, you know, there will be a lot of overlap. So we're just trying to make sure we approach this in a sensible manner that we we use the moon as much as possible to advance the goal of getting to Mars and Mars by the mid 2030s if possible.
0: Right. Do you? I have got to ask, <clears throat> because the way you describe sort of lunar people and, and mar- pro-Martian people, and not necessarily that they're exclusive, but it reminds me so much of Star Trek people and Star Wars pe- people. When they bump into <laughs> each other, do they ever do the sharks and jets kind of snap their fingers? Or is there uh, <laughs> I, I can just see it going sideways. I've been—I'm a pretty big nerd. I've been to enough of uh, Comic-Cons and things like that that, um, you know— You get two or three drinks into these different groups of people, and even the most passive of them, you know, they are uh, at least verbally uh, antagonistic to each other. It's pretty funny.
1: It has been in the past. not too bad now. We've found a good way, you know, we've been collaborating very well previous years. It was definitely, we had these wars of offense <laughs> and arguments, and, and I remember once, I won't go into detail, Sue, but we were mm. having a meeting with the transition team, NASA transition team, when the previous administration <clears throat> was coming in, and they asked, um, the tra- NASA transition people asked, can you please <laughs> call a truce with the lunar people? You know, right. we, wanted to, we want everybody to work together. And that's what we've been doing for the last few years, kind of trying to build build a larger community and make sure that we're all focused at the broader goal. Because these are really artificial arguments because it's all based on, you know, the fact that there's a limited budget. And limited, you know, we can only do so much. So, of course, everybody would like to do everything if we could. Nobody says, oh, I don't want, absolutely we should not go to the moon. Of course not, we want to go there. The people are focused on uh, primarily lunar activities, obviously want to do Mars also, but, you know, you're, when you're living within a, con, a constrained budgetary and policy environment, you know, you, you can probably you know you probably might not be able to do both. So people focus in on what their particular area of interest is. But we have for the last several years, we have found a good, fairly strong unity on how to approach this. It doesn't mean that's how it's going to end up or it's going to be there forever, but There's still a lot of, there seems to be a lot of support for trying to make sure this is a coherent Moon-Mars program, whereas we're really using the Moon to get to Mars and not, once again, and not push Mars off for decades.
0: Right. It seems to me that it would be similar to, um, you know, ancient explorers here on Earth, where I I need a ship that can leave the coast... It's, it needs to be ocean going. It needs to survive storm. I need to be able to navigate it with a, a, team of humans on there. I need to you know be able to resupply it or whatever. And maybe the initial goal is that island 200 miles offshore. But ultimately, I needed to sail and be self sustaining as far as I need to go to um, discover land or you know another port or another passage or whatever. And so. While they may be um, have some significant differences, the, you should be able to leverage the technology, the navigational tools, the whatever from one, and build upon it through your experience, so that you do, you know you don't have to start all the way over to go thousand miles versus two hundred miles. I gotta believe it's something similar to that from you know the 14th century, the 13th century when we were really starting to explore the world.
1: Well, yeah, and you know, that definitely is going to require certain technologies and advancements over time. Of course, when we crossed the oceans back initially from into the New World, we were using ships that were really designed for the Mediterranean. They weren't mm-hmm. really designed to cross the Atlantic. But once we did that, once there was that motivation, shipbuilding technology advanced dramatically. And that's <clears throat> it's a good it's good analogy because. When we go to Mars, will it be the ideal way of getting there? Probably not. Right. You know, if we use current chemical technology, it's going to take between six and eight months to get there and six to eight months back. And depending on which trajectory we do, either 30 days on the surface or a year and a half on the surface. And so, but we hopefully as we move forward, you know, technology will improve because we're motivated and we'll, we will truly have different types of nuclear propulsion. But one of the things we like arguing, and we'll have a discussion on this at the upcoming conference, nuclear versus um, chemical propulsion. We don't want to we don't we don't want new technologies to go into the critical path to Mars. And what I mean by that is we don't want to wait around until the magical solution has been found before we go when we're perfectly capable of going with chem- current chem- chemical technology. Right. We don't want to like, say, oh, well, we haven't perfected the nuclear propulsion yet. Let's delay it another 10 years. No, we, that's one of the things we try to work with the community to make sure that we do not, We that we obviously are for developing these technologies, but not putting them in the critical path if we can actually get them get there without the new technologies and just let them come when they are ready rather than being an obstacle to getting to Mars, if that makes sense.
0: It, it does. And we didn't rehearse any of these questions, but it's funny, one of the very first things I have on here, and we're on we're a limited amount of time, so I'm going to save some of these questions for some of the folks I get to talk to at the conference or maybe you and I on a longer call, but how are we going to create enough energy to really power the ship in a meaningful way? And I was thinking about whether it's, you know, Proposed plasma, theoretically, the the chemical that we already know, um, uh, nuclear has is come back in vogue as a, as a conversation. And yet there's so many things that have to be resolved around those ideas. I some of them aren't really even technologies; they're they're um, sort of a back of the napkin sketch. And I came across this quote that I just thought was hilarious. And it said, getting off of earth is a little like getting divorced. You want to do it quickly with as little baggage as possible, but powerful forces con- conspire against you, specifically gravity. And I just chuckled at that. thats uh, I've not gotten through a divorce, but I'm sure uh, this resonates. Um, you know, I want to get it over <laughs> with as quick as possible, but this gravity is conspiring against me. It, it really does. Is that... There's so many challenges. And I'm a big, as I said in the beginning, I have a lot of family. Um, We owe our livelihood in many ways to so many components of the uh, uh, aerospace industry. Human beings, whether they know it or not, on Earth, so many of our modern technology comes from... um, the space industry, one of the early days of space, they had to figure out how to do essentially telemedicine. They had to figure out how to do remote communication that if we hadn't gone through those journeys, starting in the fifties, really to now, when we just went through this pandemic, the world would have looked a lot different than, uh, right. But in in terms of energy and moving uh, that kind of mass, a couple things come to mind. One there's still a lot there to be solved. And two, it seems like, especially if you're watching the news around space exploration or at least, you know, low Earth orbit um, launches here lately, that the private sector, I don't know how well they're par- uh, partnering with government entities, but they are, there is a, you know, it's not just a government um or or a you know a national program there are private entities that are involved in that how are they all working together or how are they coming together to create the technologies that we need to propel us in a meaningful way as far as an outpost like mars
1: yeah it's a good question and we certainly are in a different and a new exciting time period truly it looks like we're entering the golden age of space exploration because of all these converging technologies, these capabilities, you know, obviously we have, you know, NASA is still very active with, you know, some great plans, but then you have these commercial players, the, the the legacy ones, we've heard about for years, like Boeing, Lockheed, Arabjet, North Bremen, but new players like SpaceX, Blue Origin, and many, 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 many others that are doing extraordinary things. And then on top of that, we have unprecedented international interest. You know, there are countries that are logging on or signing on board to go back to the moon with us and on to Mars. Small countries around the world, t- tiny ones have their own space agencies because anybody can send something into space now. I mean, we are living in an age when high schools and middle schools have their own space programs. They send up tube sets in these programs. So right. it's an interesting time. And so getting to Mars, I do envision, it, you know people say oh will it be nasa or will it be spacex i don't think that's the right question i think it will be both it's going to be a partnership uh between public private and international Mm -hmm. and then over time there will be things that are very specifically private or specifically government but i don't think it's going to be either or but I, i i but regardless how it's done you still need to maintain the policy momentum mm. and that kind of gets to some of the obstacles at least from the policy perspective keeping our eye on the ball mm. and so we, we're trying just to make sure that we keep maintain however it's done ambitious goals are maintained uh that we be like trying to at least set the goal of getting on the surface of mars by the mid-2030s and even if we miss that goal we have been focusing on it, so we're going to get there far sooner than we would have otherwise. Uh-huh. And so it's it's an interesting time, and so many different players. But it also doesn't mean it's automatically going to happen. You still need you still need to coordinate it and have strong policy objectives to, to make sure it all gets done. And there, there's still still a lot of technology that needs to be and capabilities that need to be overcome. And I alluded to one of them before. Um, you know, as for obstacles entry, descent, and landing on Mars is considered one of the biggest obstacles. And um, this is one of the reasons for this is the fact that there is an atmosphere on Mars but it's it's really thin. So Mm -hmm. when you talk to engineers, they say it's too, too thin to be much help slowing you down. But it's enough to really ruin your day if you don't account for it, because you could you you (laughs) could burn up in it. And so you have to figure out how to get through the atmosphere and land like 20 to 40 metric tons, uh, at least for humans, whereas the largest thing that we've landed on Mars, is one metric ton and that was the perseverance rover and the curiosity rover so we need to be able to scale that up dramatically but we're definitely not going to be be landing humans the way we landed those which you know are lowered down with if you recall with a crane from a retro rocket um holder and so it, we have to figure all these technologies out, and I think you alluded, alluded to also making sure we're, we're able to breathe right. <laughs> all the way to Mars, figuring out closed-loop systems. So uh, we will figure them out, but a lot of challenges.
0: Yeah, we don't have time to talk about space debris today, but that was another one that I'd never considered, especially when you were making the point a moment ago about the possible proliferation when it becomes easier for Smaller states or smaller um, entities to private entities to um, you know put together their own mission. They don't need to partner with anybody else. They can do their own thing. Um, I'm curious, what is the cooperation like? So the geopolitics of the day, uh, as we know, over in Eastern Europe is in turmoil. Our <laughs> trade partners in parts of the country is in turmoil. Um, We argue a lot internationally about rights to resources where the the rare earth materials needed to make batteries and solar panels and so many other things that we need in our, you know, digital age, or it's, um, uh, you know, larger countries um, imposing in on their neighbor about uh, trade routes or just, you know, the things that have been, you know, come and go in human history throughout, throughout all of human history. And yet it seems like from an outsider's perspective, the international space community has gotten along pretty good. We we got along really well. It seems, comparatively, you know, depending upon what you're comparing it to, with the international space station, with um, the Re- Russian space organization, the United States space organization, the astronauts of the astronauts that I've come into contact with, they have great deal of affection for their oh, yeah. colleagues and peers. It-
1: yeah, this is another this is another one I forgot to mention on why and this is why space in general. Yeah, it's one of these few areas where you have that unifies people internationally, but also here. I mean, it's also one of like a very, very small number of policy issues that have strong bipartisan support. It's it doesn't matter if you're a Republican, Democrat or whatever. Uh, you just this solid support and strong public support. And regardless where you are in the political sphere, it people support space exploration for different reasons. The same thing internationally. And as you mentioned, the space station. I think that's probably the greatest tribute to the space station that people aren't aware of what a wonderful diplomatic tool it's been. We have held, we have it just the international community has worked together brilliantly up there, Russia and the United States who have had rocky relationships for years before the current (laughs) even more rocky relationship have managed, been held together up in space. We're still working well with the Russians in space right now, even whereas everything is, well, less than right. slowed <laughs> down here on the planet. And so this, this is powerful, and this is important. This is great power to help unify, great you know, improve diplomatic relations between nations, and this is why we want to make sure when we go to Mars that it's an international effort, you know, like a continuation or an expansion of the international space community, or international Space Station partnership, you know, to help, you know, focus people on the things that we all agree on, we can get excited about. And that space is one of those few things that truly excites everybody. And even when you have countries around the world with their own space agencies people around the world still look to NASA as their own space agency. and So it's a powerful, powerful tool that only gets less than half of 1% of the federal budget, despite people thinking it's like rivals the military, which is ridiculous. Right. It's tiny percent of the budget, but it has a huge impact uh, domestically and internationally.
0: Uh, do you think as you imagine this idea of humans to Mars, um, I can't think of a sci-fi show or movie that has sort of space travel as part of its regular, you know, part of the story that this is regular, that there is, um, they take, and and, and maybe realistically so, they take the challenges that we human beings have had with borders and boundaries and, um, you know, um, everybody's getting along until there's a rare resource, and then all of a sudden we're not getting along as well, or whatever. Not not dissimilar to some of the things that are going on on our planet today. Do you, Do you suspect that the cooperation will last um, a great deal of time, or is it once we say, "Holy smokes, look this! There's gold on Mars," or there's you know fill in the blank. There's this thing, and we if we rush to it, we could be the first ones there and stake the claim. I'm wondering. How policy, not just the U.S.'s policy, but sort of our international cooperation lasts with that. Right now, it doesn't seem to, it seems like, look, we're all just working together, you know, to overcome obstacles. But there's no big pot of gold that's tangible at the end.
1: That's a good question. I, you know, I don't know the, and there is, you know, like a show like The Expanse kind of dealt with, you know, how different spheres, you know, looking for different resources and control over those resources. And that's probably probably similar to what probably will end up like, I don't mean exactly, but similar issues. And so, you know, it's a hard question. I hope we will be able to remain unified, but there's more and more players, more commercial players start, you know, utilizing resources and staking claim, you know, and, and of course, the policy and the laws will need to catch up. You know, we have international treaties that say one thing, but once people are there, you know, and right. are mining on the moon or Mars, who's going to stop them? Right. And so it'll, there'll be time as the law and policies and treaties have to catch up with reality And so I suspect probably, you know, I hope we do better in space, but, you know, I suspect as more and more people and entities are in space, um, it'll probably go similarly to much of human history. But hopefully it'll be an improvement, so it won't be constant warfare. But, you know, I think there'll be a lot of strong competition as there is within the business community.
0: Right. Well, I could... We could go down a long list of stuff, but you and I have to end here in just a few minutes. So let's talk about the summit for a few moments, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, it's coming up here in a couple of weeks. Um, I hope to be in attendance. There are a number of folks there. There's so many topics. What are some of the topics that are going to be covered um, at the com- with the conversations that are going to take place um, 17th through the 19th?
1: Yeah, it's hard, hard to choose from. Of course, we will be giving, as we always do, updates on current mission architecture plans. You know how we're going to do this, as well as state of commercial and public partnerships. Also, updates on all the science missions and things like that. You know, inter, you know with international collaboration. You know where we are, where people want to be in the next over the next decade. Some of the sessions that I'm most excited about relate to some of the things we talked about. Uh, one of them is a panel called Innova- Mars Innovation and Sustainability, or something to that mm-hmm. extent. <laughs> you know, I may have mixed up the title a little bit. Looking at these innovations required for sustainability for humans, uh, you know, in space, particularly Mars, but, but it can also benefit Earth. You know things like uh, you know by lo- like food production or yeah. or extracting water or artificial intelligence or or, or uh, medicine or remote medicine as you mentioned earlier. Looking at these things and how as you're trying to solve the problem for Mars, you're looking at the problem through the Mars lens. What great innovations we could you have that could have benefits here on Earth? Because when you're looking at a problem on Earth. you you know, we still have still plentiful here. It's not Uh you don't have much motivation for efficiency as much as we talk about efficiency. It's still incremental Uh on Mars. Unless you're almost completely efficient, you might die and that's a great motivator. And so when you're focused with this new completely uh, alien, literally alien environment, that you have to figure out solutions for you might make those big leaps that you can bring back to Earth like Brilliant new ways of producing food, or you know, if you have these new methods, autonomous methods of medicine. You know, one of the speakers, I know whose name escapes me, you know, has been developing this autonomous surgery, uh, you know, equipment. You know, at Johns Hopkins University, there are others looking at you know, uh, lab-grown meat. Aleph Farms will be there. Pascal, uh, Pascal Rosenfeld, um, and they, you know, they, they literally grew a steak israeli israeli company and you know it's it literally is steak except you don't kill a cow to do it right and that's important because people for years were talking people were talking about oh will all people people living on mars be <laughs> vegan because we can't have animals I, with this technology you're not killing an animal but you literally could have unlimited meat whether it be beef fish chicken Right. because all you need is a few cells and you right. continuously can grow it. And this, this technology is getting be- technology is getting better and better. And many of them are beginning to see space as a big market for them, you know, to try at least to get excitement there. Some of them don't, haven't realized that yet either. So one of the things we like to do is also show, introduce some of these innovations, these innovation companies to the space community, to show them that they are working on innovations. that could be very beneficial. Right. space exploration. So trying trying to build that community. Um, you know, other topics are, as I mentioned, we're going to discuss you know human health and remote medicine, entry descent landing as we discussed before, um, uh, Mars sample return, which we you know they'll be a, we'll be collecting samples and bring them back to earth. We're currently it's scheduled for 2033 before we see those samples. Hopefully it'll actually be sooner. Uh, but you know we have a panel on stem entertainment meaning that collaboration between stem stem and steam communities and the entertainment industry and how they can collaborate to really expand the whole message you know and educate students and um, expand the whole community that are supporting these goals so it goes on and on and on we have just a wonderful lineup of speakers, the NASA administrator. Uh, Bill Nelson will be speaking the first day. Last day we have uh, one of our board members, Dr. Dr. Cyan Proctor, who was on the uh, Inspiration4 mission of last year. You may recall the first all-private mission to go into Earth orbit. Right. She was also the only the fourth African-American woman to go into space and the first African-American woman to be the um, pilot on an orbiting spacecraft so you know she'll she'll be one of the speakers on the third day we just go to you go to the website at exploremars.org and follow the links just a wonderful list of speakers coming together and we're just very excited about being back in person since it's (laughs) like with everybody else it's been a long time we our last team is the Mars per- Summit in person was 2019. And then uh, some things happened in the m- middle period. <laughs> right.
0: Well, there's so many, for me, there are so many areas that are really interesting. What I like is the speakers tie them back to um, parallel industries. So, for example, if we're solving the challenges around energy, well, let me change it, T- communication is one that's really interesting to me, in space travel, how would... G- GPS wouldn't work on Mars or the moon for that matter or whatever. So how do we do that? Can we can we change how we do it? Uh, we, we want the outcome, the result of GPS, but we have to change the technology that we're using, for example, and how could we do that? And one of the things that I learned as I was listening to a speaker, if you're in any sort of depth in the ocean, GPS doesn't work there either. And so there's other, you know, they have to bring in these technologies and these things are Parallel problems, and they, there's a lot of overlap. If I can solve it for space, I can usually apply some or all of it to oceanic, with the pressure, with atmosphere um, challenges that I've got, with um, the need to be airlocked and tight and uh, maneuver and extreme temperatures and obstacles, and on and on. And so, whether that's energy production or it's efficiency or it's um, uh, life habitats or communication how you communicate through for example the ocean or underwater is much different than you do on land because you don't have air to to uh, convey sound waves in the same way they're looking at on the you know on the surface of a planet how do we do that so how does it help everyday people as we're evolving these technologies to help us to get these next outposts because that's the human condition we explore good or bad we explore You were talking about food. We had a um, gentleman named Gene Bolin on the show a few months ago. And um, in the not-too-distant past, he was a chief scientist of an organization that was working with NASA to 3D print food. And he said to work, we wanted to work with them because we wanted to be in low-Earth orbit. When you try to 3D print food, there are certain things that have to be hollow. And traditional 3D printing or additive manufacturing... um, has to work, it, it can only. there's only certain things you can do in gravity because you um, you have to have a frame to keep it up. You can't do organ, certain organs you can't do, if not most organs, or all these other things because it will collapse under gravity. But if you're in low Earth orbit, you can do these things. So we were really excited about that, and NASA said, that sounds really cool, but you know what would really help us? If you could print something that tasted like what people expected to taste and had the texture of what people expect it, the texture would be like, and it would have the smell. And then lastly, the visual that was not as important as texture, taste and smell. And so it just set us off on this conversation about, um, can we get to the point where I have amino acids in a, you know, in containers or I have a source piece of material, um, and I can grow whatever it is that I want. And it seems crazy to us, but they pointed out how many technologies we use every day and we don't think about today that 50 years ago seemed impossible. You know, It was, a, it was every 20,000 leagues, under the sea, whatever movie or book about how these impossible technologies and now they're so common we don't even think about them. And so th- those are some of the things I love about the speakers at the summit to talk about how autonomous surgery nanotechnology energy all these other things how we're working on them today to solve that future problem and how it's changing our world for human flourishing right now
1: yeah well that's that's the key part and that's what we like focusing on i mean we want to get there we want to explore we want to learn the big questions but you know i've always been a great fan of that exact question how can it how can this transform and improve human life here on this planet by by doing the big things, expanding these you know, frontiers, developing technologies we wouldn't have otherwise, and all of a sudden it just become a transformed society as it already has, right. as you mentioned before. Of course, we've had space space pro- program has um, transformed the way we live <clears throat> in calculable ways people aren't aware of. And you know, they don't think about how integral satellites are and the innovations that just through the Apollo program. While Apollo program did not invent computers, it stimulated a started a process in Silicon Valley, a miniaturization that really kind of transformed the technological revolution of the next several decades. So it may not have invented the computer, but it certainly motivated the direction of it because of the need that initial need for uh, miniaturized parts or computer parts for Apollo. So, and it goes on and on with weather forecasting, smoke detectors, things like that. It's big and large, you know, big and small. Um, and I think it's going to be dramatically more impactful as we move forward.
0: Right. Well, Chris, we're, we're at a time for today, but this is just the first of many conversations. Um, people want to find out more about Explore Mars uh, the not-for-profit or the Summit, where do they find that at?
1: They can go to exploremars.org. You know, look for the Summit. There'll be a link there. You'll see it right at the top, you know, for Summit. And that'll bring you right to the registration page or the agenda, speakers list, et cetera.
0: Okay. And are they able to attend both in person and virtually? Or are they able to sign up for sessions either way?
1: Uh, they will, you know, we, well, we hope as many people as possible will sign right. up in person because it's there's so much going on you can't get it all virtually but there will be we will be announcing a um our webcast sometime sometime soon and that'll be posted on the website as well
0: perfect chris carberry thank you very much for joining us today and we hope you've enjoyed the show if you have please like subscribe share and comment we'll see you next time on the qts experience see you soon everybody Bye.